Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. This is our second uh, service of Advent, and we are taking as a theme for our Advent this year uh, prophecies and writings concerning Christ from Isaiah. And we will be doing that this morning from Isaiah 40. But I want to give a little background first before we start and look at the text because it's important to know what's happening leading up to the writing of Isaiah 40, even though I'm going to tell you there's kind of a strange connect slash disconnect. So if you want to see chronologically the history as it leads up to Isaiah 40, you can start reading in 2 Kings because it chronicles the times that Isaiah is ministering and it chronicles some of the same things that Isaiah speaks to as he performs his prophetic ministry. And so in 2 Kings 20, you have Hezekiah, the king in Judah, and he is afflicted with a mortal sickness. He's going to die. And he appeals to God and asks God that he would deliver him from this sickness. And God hears him and he heals him. Gives him several more years, I think, 15, something like that. And so Isaiah speaks into that in chapter 38, I believe. And then in 2 Kings 21, you have Hezekiah's son, And this is Manasseh, but before Manasseh takes the throne, you have Isaiah in chapter 39, after Hezekiah is healed from his sickness, the king of Babylon sends emissaries to Judah, to Jerusalem, and the emissaries come with a gift from the king of Babylon, like a happy get well, glad you got well gift, is kind of what it was. And they brought it to Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah is feeling good because he got a happy get well gift from Babylon, from the king. And so he decides to take the emissaries through and show them all of his riches. And when Isaiah finds out about it, he says, that was not smart. And you're going to get in trouble because they're going to come and take all those riches and all of your descendants into Babylon. And so then you have in 2 Kings, starting in... uh, chapter 21, Hezekiah's son Manasseh, who is extremely evil. He is a, he, he's a man of huge bloodshed and wickedness and idolatry. And he does horrible wickedness in the kingdom. In fact, the later consequences that will come on the people, some of them are specifically spoken of as a consequence because of the wickedness of Manasseh even though other kings were between Manasseh and that judgment, okay? So Manasseh, very wicked. Then you have Ammon becomes king. He's also evil. Then you have this break with Josiah, who's good, a good king who rules with righteousness, and he leads the people back to the Lord. He turns the hearts of the nation back to the Lord. But he's followed by the Jehoiahs, okay? So you have Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, 
and Jehoiachin. And all three of them were wicked, wicked men, evil men. And Jehoiachin was the one upon whom came the fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah made to Hezekiah saying, your descendants are going to go to Babylon. Babylon comes, sieges Jerusalem. It's taken. They carry all the riches and all the men up to Babylon. And so we come to Isaiah 40, right after Isaiah warns Hezekiah about Babylon and what's going to happen. And we have kind of a, like I said, it's a disconnect. Because we're going to come, the first word is going to be what? Comfort, right? That's the first word we're going to hear in the chapter. But it's like, it's, where is it? What's happened? Is it comfort because of the specifics that Isaiah has just prophesied about what's going to happen in Babylon? Is it comfort? Uh, it's, it's much more than that. That's why it's kind of disconnected, because it's almost as if Isaiah at this point is backing away from what's close, and he's looking big picture at everything. And so read with me the text. You know, when I say he's backing away, it's like... Um, It's almost completely otherly. You know, we think that we have uh, incredible ability when we go up to the IMAX theater. And IMAX means what? You know what it means? Image maximum. It's like 10 times bigger than a normal screen, and it's supposed to be this incredible experience, right? So would you rather go to the IMAX theater to see the Caribbean? Or would you rather stand on the beach in the Caribbean and see the Caribbean? I have actually been on the beach in the Caribbean with my feet buried in the sand, looking at the turquoise water, eating grilled fish. And let me tell you, the IMAX theater doesn't understand the image. Because all it is is an image. And Isaiah is backing away from that specific, and he's saying, Phew. but he's, he's trying to explain something that's so much more. I think any prophecy from the Lord is like this. They're trying to explain something that's so much more than what we can understand by trying to relate to it in a picture. Because what they're conveying are truths about God and not about idols, and all IMAXs are really are images, right? They're not real. All, the, all movies are images. So they're, but that's not Isaiah. Isaiah in this situation, he's backed away and he's trying to depict, depict something that's global, that's massive. It's like he's actually on the beach describing to us what's happening. And so he says, Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. 
Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice calls, a voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right away he says, comfort, O comfort my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Remember, Isaiah is seeing the big picture. He has his eye turned to see all of God's people at all time at this point. He's seeing my people is a bigger, expansive picture. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Well, yes, of course, there is a specific Jerusalem, God's people in Isaiah's time and space. And he is speaking to them, but he's also speaking to the Jerusalem, God's people in all time and space. God desires to comfort his people whom he loves. And here he gives a command to all his prophets to do the work of comforting. Well, we all have a need to be comforted. And pastors and evangelists are called to hold out comfort. But comfort about what? Well, immediately, we can all think of reasons that we need comfort today. Very specific, very time-sensitive, very this past week, the week before, the week before. We can think of reasons very close that we need to be comforted today. And yes, God's comfort extends to those things because he's the God of all comfort. But in this text, he's talking about a comfort that's related more specifically to something else. What are his comforting words? What does he say? He says, her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. She have, has received of the Lord's hand double from all for all her sins. Well, what warfare has ended? What warfare has ended? What is Isaiah seeing that he's looking at? And, and it's global. And he's saying the warfare has ended. Is it Jerusalem's warfare? Is it time and space, Isaiah's time and space, Jerusalem's warfare? No, because they're going to have wars. They're going to be besieged by Babylon and carried off. There's going to be war that's going to continue to happen then. Is it the warfare and struggle of God's people in their conflict with Satan and worldliness and sin? No. Those conflicts continue to exist. They continue to go on in the lives of God's people. They would happen with Israel in that time. They would continue to happen with God's people all the way up to the present day. What is the warfare that's ended? Well, it's the warfare with God. The warfare with God has ended. God has ended the war. And Isaiah is about to open up the big picture of God's provision to end the war. Her iniquity, her crimes have been removed. Her crimes before God have been renewed. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, I told you what the reference to what that verse was, right? I said it before I read the verse. But how many of you, if I would have just said, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, how many of you would have thought that was a quote from the New Testament? Now, you're not raising your hands because nobody wants to, but I'm watching your faces for the, <laughs> the, little, the little tweaks in the corner of the mouth. And you realize that we associate that, those words so strongly with the, with the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ that we think, oh, that's... But here it is, it's in Psalms. And see, God has been a God who has been in the process, in the work, doing the work of forgiving the sins of his people, always. But globally, cosmically, in the context of comfort, comfort by people, the big picture, God is saying, your iniquities before God have been removed. The war has ended. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Well, what does that mean? She has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Does that mean that God has doubled the punishment? Has he doubled the punishment? Had Israel received double the punishment? Had the Jerusalem at that time received double the punishment for their sins? Have you ever received double the punishment for your sins? John Calvin writes about this. He says, here the word double denotes large and abundant. It must not be imagined that the punishments were greater than the offenses or equal to them. For we ought to abhor the blasphemy of those who accuse God of cruelty as if he inflicted on men excessively severe punishment. For what punishment could be inflicted that was sufficient, sufficiently severe even for the smallest offense? You follow that? You think he's setting you up for something nice. But he takes it away, doesn't he? First of all, it's not God's character to be nasty and mean and punish people double. Because if it were, what could be a sufficient punishment for even the smallest sin against him? And we know that a sin that's not covered by the work of Jesus Christ is going to be punished. The smallest sin is going to be punished. And what's the punishment? Eternal damnation. There's no way that God could double up and satisfy himself. He's not that kind of God, and that's not what this is about. Do you understand? And so what has God done? Well, he's 
He said this, uh, Calvin goes on, he said, this must therefore relate to the mercy of God, who by setting a limit to the chastisements, testifies that he's unwilling to punish them any longer or more, as if he were abundantly satisfied with what had gone before, though that nation deserved far severer chastisements. God sustains the character of a father who, while he compassionates, I love that word, all right, he compassionates. The character of a father who, while he compassionates his children, is led, not without reluctance, to exercise severity, and thus willingly bends his mind to grant forgiveness. You follow? This is the character of God. Not giving us what we deserve. In fact, being expansive about not giving us what we deserve. Double not what we deserve. Be comforted. God has reconciled his people to himself through Christ. Grace double to the need. Verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And if you look, who, who knows who that voice is? Who's the voice crying in the wilderness? John the Baptist, okay, it says so. This, this uh, text is quoted in every one of the Gospels. And it's always quoted about John the Baptist. He is the voice calling in the wilderness, prepare a way. Matthew 3 says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is the voice, the prophetic voice of pastors and evangelists. It was the prophetic voice of Isaiah. It was the prophetic voice of John. It is the prophetic voice of your pastors. It is the prophetic voice of evangelists. This is the voice calling God's people to repentance. Calling them to repentance. The second part of verse 3, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Do any of you remember far back enough to remember when I-69 was being constructed from here to Evansville? It's a long time ago, isn't it? Okay, how many of you have driven across the Harmony Bridge overpass? The Harmony Bridge overpass. Did you spit over the side? It's tall, isn't it? You should take your family, just drive, you know, wear your masks because you live together. Drive out to the Harmony Bridge overpass and drive over there and have your children just look out the car window out there and see how far down it is, right? They had to lower the mountain. At the bridge, you're at the crest of the 
of the, the uh, what do they call that on the top of the hill? The ridge. The bridge is on what was the ridge, and they just cut out an entire cutting of the mountain. And they brought the mountain low. And they filled in the valleys, and they raised the valleys up. And they took away the curves, and they made straightways so that you could drive fast, right? Did, did I-69 run through any of your property? Anybody? Okay. Did you actually go out and do any digging to raise the valleys or lower the mountains? Anybody? Anybody do any of that? The highway department didn't ask us to do the work. They contracted all that work to be done. And we are glad that we can get to Evansville faster because of all the times I want to zip down to Evansville, right? But I don't think of that highway being constructed especially for me or by me or through my property. Do you? Do you think of that? I'm sure you don't. This is the mistake we make, though, when we read here about the highway of God. Because what we think as we read it is, yes, God needs a highway constructed. There has to be a highway. The mountains have to be brought down. The valleys have to be brought up. The crooked places have to be made straight because a highway has to be made so that the Messiah can be revealed. There has to be a highway that's made straight. So yes, we need to do something out there. Something has to be done out there. Let's get out our checkbooks and let's write checks to the Mission Society. Let's write checks to, um, to the church plant in Columbus or the church plant in Evansville. Let's write checks to the evangelistic uh, emphasis club that's, you know, so that, okay, yeah, we've got to get that out there. We've got to make the highway. We've got to get out there and make the highway in Africa, in Evansville. In the, in the unevangelized places of Bloomington. But you realize that's because we're superimposing on the text something that's just not there. Is that what John the Baptist said? This was a prophecy about John the Baptist. Is that what he did? He was a voice crying out in the wilderness. And what was he saying? Get your shovel! Send your shovel to the Evansville people. Now, what did he say? What's the first word you think of when you hear what John the Baptist said? Repent. Repent. You there. You there. You there. You there. Repent. That's John the Baptist. And what is he doing when he's saying repent? Well, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah concerning his ministry. He's preparing a way for the Lord. But he's not preparing a way for the Lord by getting people to give to that missions organization in Africa or by getting people to give to Evansville or by getting people to, to join some kind of evangelistic program. He's preparing a way for the Lord by, by getting the mountains lowered and the valleys raised and the crooked places made straight 
in the hearts of the people. (laughs) In your heart, in my heart, that's what he's doing. So what is it? Matthew Henry says we must get our hearts leveled by divine grace. We must get our hearts leveled by divine grace. Those that are hindered from comfort in Christ by their dejections and despondencies are the valleys that must be exalted, raised up. Those who are hindered from comfort in Christ by a proud conceit of their own merit and worth are the mountains and hills that must be made low. Those that have entertained prejudices against the word and ways of God that are untrackable, untractable and disposed to thwart and contradict even that which is plain and easy because it agrees not with their corrupt inclinations and secular interests are the crooked that must be made straight and the rough places that must be made plain. Which one are you? Are you a valley, timid, weak? And that God needs by his comfort to raise you up? Are you a proud, tough mountain that God needs by his mercies to work in to grind you down? Are you a perverse judge of God's work and character? that he needs to take his measuring line and run it up against you and make you straight so that his gospel can come to Africa? Where? To you. To your heart. That's where his gospel is coming. You're the terrain. You're it. You're the terrain for the gospel to go to you. And by his power, God makes a highway for his glory. Repentance and faith in the heart. Your heart is the road construction. That's where it's happening. Isaiah, John, And all of God's servants testifying to the Christ and his gospel are crying for the people to make ready the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. That's what pastors do. That's what we do. And we're all resistant. I mean, I suppose that hill that Harmony Road sits on could have, if it could have felt with some kind of nerve endings, the effects of having those, dynam- those drill holes drilled into it and that dynamite blasting it apart and those trucks and those excavators moving and moving and moving, it would probably do what we do as God works on our hearts. It would probably be going, ah! But a highway has to be made for God. A highway has to be made for the Messiah. And we're not ready for that. And the very God who makes it brings with it and the making of it his comfort. Comfort. 
And it's coming. The comfort's coming. Don't, don't worry. It's coming. What type of terrain does God have to deal with when he engages you? Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I said it's coming. Tim Bailey accuses me sometimes of being like a dog that uh, gets something in its mouth and shakes it until, you know, it's all in shreds or something. I don't know. And... uh, and what, it, it's true that I like, the ver, I, like the things, I like things to be in their like, reduced state. I'm not uh, complicated. I like things, I like reduced state things. I'm a framer. I'm not a finished carpenter. I like to see things. I like to see the foundations. I like to see the studs up, right? I like to see that kind of stuff because it kind of gives me a sense for the structure, right? And so I want to like join, join with me now, join me in this, my, my affliction. Would you? Join me in my affliction. I want you to understand a secret. Here's the secret. It's all about Jesus. That's the secret. It's all about Jesus. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. Christ has been revealed. He is being revealed in your hearts, it says in Corinthians. He will be revealed when He comes in glory. It's all about Jesus. That's what it's about. All flesh will see it. Everybody. Everybody's going to see it. Every, every head will bow. Every knee will bend. Everybody. What are they going to bow to? What are they going to bend their heads to? Who's it about? Jesus. Why? (laughs) Because God says so. I wish we could interpret that and understand it in the text. And it actually literally says, because I said so. Because parents say that to their kids all the time. But this is Almighty God. And He's just saying, I said so. I have spoken. It's about Jesus. It's going to happen. I have spoken. And so 1 John says that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Again, just a bare thing. Join me in my silliness, right? Just join me. Every, every spirit that confesses that, that Jesus has come in the flesh. We're having Christmas, right? What's it about? <laughs> do, you get up, do you get up in the morning and do you say, I don't, so don't worry. But I should. Do you get up in the morning and do you say, ah, it's about Jesus. He's come in the flesh. 
But it seems like the Bible thinks it's important for us to say that. It seems like the Bible thinks that that's kind of a foundational issue. It's about Jesus, and he's come in the flesh. If he didn't come in the flesh, we'd be in big trouble. Big trouble. And all of this would be worthless. And so we have the Bethlehem candle to remember that he's come in the flesh. I said earlier from 2 Corinthians, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has revealed Christ in our very hearts. He's made the rough terrain into a path where he can actually reveal Christ to us. That's what he's doing with you. And it doesn't end. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings. King of kings, Lord of lords. Who's it about? It's all about Jesus. You know what's interesting is before that little section I just read you from uh, Revelation, the immediate phrase before that section that I read you, it says this. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Isaiah's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony, my testimony to you today is the testimony about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's the spirit of every prophecy. Who did you think it was about? One more text about Jesus. It'll be your Christmas Eve text, and Pastor Bailey's going to preach it. But I won't, I won't uh, comment, just read it. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God wants you to know he has provided for you. And it's about Jesus. Verse 6, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You can have hope. That's what this whole chapter is about. The hope you can have. You can have comfort. But you can't have hope and comfort in things that perish. That's idolatry. Now we think of idolatry and we think of people who build statues and shaped like animals or people and they have a bowl of oranges and they set in front of it some rice, some incense. And they're idolaters, right? Now I just want you to know, anything you put your hope in, anything of any significance that you put your hope in for your future, for life, the things that you, are, you hang your hat on. These are the things that are idolatry. No different than you hanging your hat on that statue with the, with the orange bowl and oranges in front of it. Anything you're hanging your hat on that you have hopes in, this is your idolatry. We're no different than people who built statues. If you think you are, you're deceiving yourself. In fact, if you go on in chapter 40, you'll find him talking about the guy who builds the statue. And then you'll find him talking about the reality of God, who God is by comparison. And, you know, he says, I sit above the circle of the earth. I, you, you don't get it. You think you can build this, but you don't, there's no hope in that. You are, that thing you built is as, is as finite, as temporary as the body you, you would dwell in. I'm the one, he says. I'm the one. So don't be an idolater. So you have hope, but do you have hope in things that, that are idols? Do you have hope in being young? Do you have hope in being young? Some of you are very young, and you have hope in being young. What does it mean when it says, the grass withers? You don't have the slightest idea maybe yet the fact of how fast the, the grass withers. Let's say, you get, let's say you get a good long life. Let's say you live to be 92. 92. Richard, how old are you? 74. 74. Let's say Richard gets to be 92. 
I hope so. But Richard, it's taken a long time, hasn't it? Hasn't it just been you just thinking, will this ever stop? It's like, that was his life, 72 years. Young people, 72 years. Like grass, you watch the grass. Pick out a blade, do an experiment with your family, and watch that blade of grass and see how fast it goes. You think you have time to trust in? I got news for you. That's how much time you've got. What about your wealth? Some of you say, well, I got a lot of wealth. Some of you young people have been mowing lawns. You got $2,000 in the bank. You got a lot of wealth. Some of you old people have been making people mow lawns. You got a little more. And so what? Is that what you're going to trust in? Is that your idol? Is that what gives you hope? Is that going to comfort you in the face of God's wrath? How about that you're an American? Proud to be an American. Where at least I know I'm free. Right? Ain't going to matter. On the judgment day, as people pass through the, the, the assembly before God to be judged, do you think you're going to hear any words of pardon over Americans? Oh, you're an American. That's impressive. I'm reformed. I'll hope in being reformed. I got it right. I've got everything down. Systematized. Those stupid people who don't have a system, I have a system. They might not have a system, but maybe they've got Jesus. You ever think of that? Oh, you're going to say, well, they got to have a system to have Jesus. Okay. Maybe you're strong, powerful. Maybe you're handsome. Maybe you're beautiful. Maybe you're intelligent. Oh, I'm intelligent. I'm, I, I, that'll, that'll, that's my hope, my intelligence. I'll figure it out. And God says, no. Fading, withering, going fast. None of your idols will, will, will matter. None of them. And so that's why he has to tell us here, you're like grass. One thing lasts forever, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord lasts forever. You have hope because God says so, and his word lasts forever. That's why you have hope. First Peter says, blessed be the God and Father who according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven. 
those who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Hope. As to the salvation, he says, same chapter, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Spirit, the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. All the prophets knew that God had to bring this about in order to comfort his people. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these cases, which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Why? Because it's about Jesus. (laughs) And the angels don't understand what Jesus should mean to us. I hope what Jesus does mean to you. And in that same chapter, he ends by saying, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. God has comfort for you. He's going to make your mountains low, and he's going to bring your valleys up, and he's going to straighten out your crooked paths so that his gospel can come into your heart, and so that you can receive the comfort of God's people. I pray and hope that you already have received it and that you continue to receive it. But this is the promise of God. It is his word because he said so, and it endures forever and ever. And amen. Amen. You guys, you're going to have to start picking up the slack of the amens. If you haven't learned, learned the song that Jody wrote about Let Every Valley from, from Isaiah 40, I want, you to, I want you to listen to it. We're thinking about sending out a link so that you can listen to it through the office. But the, the, the chorus is, Let every valley be lifted up, and the mountains and hills be made low. Let the rugged terrain be made a smooth plain for the gospel to go. Remember, people, it's not out there. <laughs> It's not Evansville, it's not Africa, it's not your evangelistic organization, it's your heart that has to be made a smooth plane for the gospel to go. That's the terrain that we're talking about. And God will make it so. He is the God of all comfort. He wants to be reconciled to you. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks today for your word from the prophet Isaiah, the testimony concerning your son through all history, as you have prepared a road for him, and as he has been revealed and is being revealed in our hearts and will be revealed on the last day. Father, make us 
expectant for that revelation by loving every revelation that comes to us and seeking them. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.